I showed that. Nobody listening. Ain't nobody listening. Ain't nobody listening. And with me in the studio, Saad Al-Harthi, Executive Director of uh, the Environment Society of Oman. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me, Abdullah. Uh, I would love to get into how you got you came into this role and all of that. But first, um, what is the Environment Society of Oman? We, I mean, we hear this, ESO, ESO. Yeah. But what is it well, exactly? Well, I'm glad you've heard of us. Uh, we were established in 2004 mm-hmm. as the first and only environmental uh, non-profit, non-government organization in Oman with the aims of trying to conserve and preserve Oman's natural heritage. Mm -hmm. And in order to do this, we conduct various uh, research programs with the aims of informing conservation action. And then we also have various community outreach and education awareness programs. 2004, that's a long time. Yes. Yeah. Um, However, I've only uh, become aware of uh, the society in the last few years. I think you guys have been doing quite interesting campaigns. Yeah, I think uh, the reach has definitely spread um, with the help of social media. Um, So, yes, there's there have definitely been a lot of campaigns uh, online. And, you know, um, it's I guess it's easier to reach reach out to people that way across the Sultanet. I joined in 2012. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so that's a, quite a long time as well. It doesn't feel like it's been very long, but yes, I guess so. <laughs> it's 2022? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just fast track and we're here in 2022. It's a decade. Yes. You're that's... right. Yeah. I think I'm just realizing that right now. <laughs> they should do something to celebrate my 10 years. When is when is you, when are you going to turn 10? I joined uh, September. So soon? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, take notes, you guys. I'm ex- <laughs> expecting a big celebration. <laughs> you, ha- you have a couple of your colleagues yes. in here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, who 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 is in here? Uh, actually, Jahina Al Ghafiri, who okay. is one of our uh, newest employees, mm-hmm. um, and she's part of a capacity building program that we have uh, to basically bring in um, young Armani graduates mm-hmm. and train them on environmental management, field research, environmental communication, so mm. that we can kind of breed the next generation of environmentalists. So when you came into the society in 2012, what are some of the things that you felt the society could do more of? What changes did you bring into it? That's an interesting question. Um, to be honest, I think that when I came in in 2012, uh, there was a very high uh, dependence, I would say, on, um, you know, from an organizational perspective, we have to think of ESO, which started off as um, an NGO that had only one individual mm-hmm. back in the early days and had a larger number of board members, so something like 10 board members. And so the burden and the responsibility was more so on these voluntary board members than it was on the employees. And I think that when I entered in 2012, they were in a bit of a middle ground where you st- still had, um, you know, these voluntary board members um, that were still quite heavily involved, mm. but you also had um, the staff and um, 
I think that when I came in, we kind of transitioned a little bit more to identifying what the role of board members are versus what the role of um, the um, the employees are. And, mm. and, and in that way, um, there's a little bit more of a strategic direction that's being set by the board. And, um, you know, the, the, the rest of the employees kind of move in that direction and, you know, make sure that everything falls in line with the strategic um, aspirations of the board. So I would say that there's a little bit more clarity when it comes to the organizational structure. Mm -hmm. Other than that, like on the environmental side of things, um, I would say that we were more heavily focused on uh, the uh, research programs, Mm -hmm. you know, and research is very important because that is what gives you the information that you need to convert that into some, yes, action plans, decisions, things like that. And so research is still a a big component of what we do, but we are also transitioning to a phase where we have enough information right now. Let's work towards advocating and converting that into action plans. I'd love to know more about the the research you do, because I didn't know that ESO does research. On what area exactly? So we have some land-based programs and Mm. some marine-based programs. On the, um, which would you prefer to start with? <laughs> let's, let's go land-based. Land-based, yeah. okay. So uh, on the land side of things, we have been focusing on frankincense research uh, in the far. So frankincense, which is otherwise known as Luban, mm-hmm. has very important um, medicinal as well as cultural value. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, most of us are aware that Luban comes from tapping the frankincense tree and then obtaining um you know the the, the sap the sap that yeah. comes out um our program has been to try to understand what the sustainable levels of harvesting the tree are so i mean if you over harvest then of course your tree could potentially deteriorate and die okay um so understanding what's the right cut size based on you know the the type of tree the trunk size the foliage cover things like this type of this information was not known before. which was not necessarily known before people were just assuming Yes, I mean, like, I think that we should not disregard local knowledge. I'm sure that there's a lot of, um, you know, local um, knowledge because locals have been doing it for generations. Um, For, Um, since the Egyptians. (laughs) Yes, yes. But however, this has changed um, with the influx of laborers that have kind of, Mm. you know, are taking over and, um, you know doing this work these days more so than Omanis. Um, and so, yes, I mean, it's sometimes when it comes to um, this aspect of things, consumer side of things, uh, people tend to harvest as much as they need to without kind of thinking of the future. Right. So trying to get the correct information on how do we sustainably harvest this tree to ensure that you're meeting the, the needs, the economic yeah. needs, yeah. but also ensuring that you have the sustainability that this tree will survive. Um, what did you learn? Is there any... So there are very specific guidelines that we've published mm-hmm. on what's the best way to tap the tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, how many times to tap, how many taps in the season, what the size of the cut should be. And it's all dependent on the, the tree itself, like the size of the tree as well. Uh, did this? Did you pursue this research yourself when you came in or was it there before? Uh, we actually had a board member that had initiated this research. Allah okay. uh, Dr. Mohsen. He's, uh, he's passed away now, but definitely his legacy lives on at the Environment Society of Amman. And he was from Lufar. Mm. And this was, um, you know, his passion, 
really was the frankincense uh, tree. I see. And, uh, you know, and because even after uh, his passing, like most recently, we have continued research to try to understand what the population levels are in the far because, you know, it's not very clear as well. Is the population in decline or is it um, thriving? Yeah. You know, are there signs of regeneration? And this kind of information helps you to uh, better manage the trade of the frankincense as well, you know, should mm. we be concerned with the trade or, you know, are, are the levels fine and uh, we can continue trading in the same way that we're, we, we're currently going. That's very specific. I Also very interesting. So what, what other land-based uh, research so, is So uh, other land-based uh, research is focused on raptors, uh, birds of prey. Okay. Uh, we've got several species here in Amman. So um, we've been studying Egyptian vultures as well as lapid-faced vultures. And um, uh, the, the main purpose of the program is to identify their, uh, their movement, their migration patterns, their breeding behavior. And once again, this information will help you understand if they're facing any threats, what those threats are, and how you might be able to address them. Mm. So although um, raptors globally are kind of in decline. Somehow in Oman, particularly with the Egyptian vulture, the populace, population seems to be thriving. Really? Uh, and so trying to understand this a little bit more, what it is, what is it that's keeping them thriving here? How can we ensure their continued survival? Are there some new threats that are coming into play as we're, as we're continuing to well, develop? I think um, I, I, I'm not sure what the problem is. Like, what, why is it a problem that they're here? It's not a problem. It's a good thing for it's us that they're thing? here. It's actually a very good thing because then, they have a vital role that they play in the ecosystem. Oh, really? Which has to do with... Um, then I must be confusing this with this other news of uh, these birds that are not from this environment and they're somehow causing a problem and I never... Alien, Alien yes, yeah. I mean, there are many yeah. different species of birds that have been introduced mm. in Oman that are not n necessarily native um uh, birds. Okay. Um, and this, then, this doesn't fall under that. No, category. it doesn't My fall. Bad. But 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 okay. I can you know just speak generally on it. Mm. And um, with these species, they tend to do really well, and then they end up taking the place of your native populations. Mm. So that's what the concern is there. Okay. Yeah. And so okay. about the Egyptian raptors. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, we're continuing to track them. So most recently, we've also been um, tagging um, the lapid-faced vultures, which if you've not seen the videos, you should certainly, um, you know, check out our social media. It's quite interesting to see. I'm curious. Yeah. Um, this was funded by the Disney Conservation Fund, actually, most recently. I, I didn't know Disney had a conservation Imagine, fund. Imagine, right? <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. Mickey Mouse is funding it. <laughs> Um, uh, I don't know if I trust Mickey Mouse. Yeah. Have you seen him? He's kind of yeah. creepy. <laughs> Are you not an 80s baby? <laughs> um, almost. Uh, 1990, so like in the cusp. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, so this is interestingly specific. For some reason, I assume ESO would be very general in its uh, pursuits. For example, uh you know, spreading the message of caring about your environment, which I think you also mm -hmm. do. Just putting that level of awareness in people's mind that your their actions cause harm and that they should reconsider and rethink. Yeah. yeah. Um, so for it to be very specific to like Luban, 
you know yeah. and you 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 pursue research that's yeah. real value yeah. beyond awareness right yes yeah so that's really fascinating you know i think that there is uh it we do face a bit of a challenge because we do have very focused research programs and the value in that is that you really understand the population um you know there's a real value in understanding um how that species is doing mm-hmm. but then i think the drawback of the fact that it is so focused is that you miss out on some of the other species that you know individuals and um society might feel that maybe we should place a little bit of emphasis on some of these other populations as well mm. uh which for us is a little bit of a of a balancing act, I would say. I think we try to look at uh, species that are not already being addressed by some of the other environmental entities that are already mm-hmm. uh, here in Oman and try to fill in the gap where possible. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is that when it comes to the species that you select, they um, are also considered a flagship species. So by by saying flagship, I mean that, for example... When if you say flagship, I think like the latest phone... Why? 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 Because why? They, they always call the highest spec phone in any company the flagship phone. Okay. Well, the highest <laughs> spec whales out there, then you know, kind of hold the flag for the rest of the marine environment. You can look at it that way. Interesting. Okay. So, for example, if we're saying that we want to focus on um, marine mammals, right? Mm. Whales and dolphins. Um, these are very charismatic species, right. okay? Yeah. Rather than me saying that I want to focus on a specific type of fish mm-hmm. um, that people are like, oh, no, I'm just going to consume that. I'm just going to eat <laughs> it, you know? Yeah. Um, so because they're so beautiful and charismatic, um, they, have a high, they also have a high uh, role to play in the environment. By conserving them, you are, in a de facto way, conserving mm. the rest of the ecosystem, Right. So although it might seem like we're only focusing on certain species, uh, at the end of the day, you're still working broadly. Um, when you address the threats that they're facing, you are also addressing threats that other marine organisms face. So when you pick these species, um, I'm, I'm guessing you're looking at a couple of factors. First, um, its impact on the, the environment as a whole. Because like any species, you remove it from the environment, you don't know what the implications are going to be in the, in the long run. Even mosquitoes. There yeah. was a whole documentary about, uh, an audio documentary about why not just get rid of all mosquitoes because we can do it. But you don't know the implications yes, of yeah, that. But yeah. mosquitoes are not very charismatic. No one yes, would care. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. So then yeah, the, another yeah, factor to yeah, look at yeah. is what would connect with people. Yes. And, yeah. and so whales, and dolphins, yeah, yes, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So maybe that's a good line-in for us to to get into the marine environment then, yeah, and some of those projects. Um, So we have been researching whales and dolphins in Oman as well for maybe like over 20 years now. Hmm. Um, ESO as well as, you know, some some of the voluntary groups that existed before ESO formally became an organization. Mm. So there's a lot of information and data out there that's been collected on whales and dolphins in Oman. Mm-hmm. We have been mostly focused on the Arabian Sea humpback whale. Okay. Uh, and the reason is that this is a population that's considered to be, um, at least the subpopulation, considered to be endangered. And um, they have a very small population size, which is estimated to be not more than 100 individuals that are surrounding the waters of Oman. 100? 100. That's nothing. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
It's a very unique population because it's the only population of humpback whale that doesn't uh, undertake long seasonal migrations. Mm. So, you know, whales exist and humpback whales exist in other parts of the world, but they usually travel great distances between the equatorial areas that they use for their um, breeding. Mm. And then they go up either to the north, uh, northern, um, uh, towards the North Pole or the South Pole for their feeding. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Oman, you have a very unique system where both the breeding and the feeding is all taking place in this small area of like the Arabian Sea and Northern Indian Ocean. And it's a hundred of them. It's essentially a tribe. Yes, yes, it is a tribe and they almost have their own language as well. <laughs> really? So, yes, yeah, so, um, which is a very, so, so, so whales sing mm. and usually the singing is associated with breeding behavior. Yeah, it's very eerie though. I think it's beautiful. It, uh, <laughs> yeah, it is kind of, it is, it is, but it's just it's so also very eerie. amazing. Put that yeah. in the backtrack of a horror movie <laughs> yeah, and, and <laughs> no one will be, sh you know, it, it will make sense. <laughs> yeah, I, I, okay, I can't see that. I can't see that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's something very special as well. Yeah. Um, and um, so, yeah, whales, whales have a song and their mm. song usually changes over time. And um, as populations interact with each other, mm. they kind of pick up, you know, some mm. accents and thing like, things like that from each other. No way. Yeah. However, the population in Oman, they sing a very ancient song, you can say. And... Because it they don't mix. Exactly. They don't mix. There, there have been some records of uh, whales kind of coming here, humpback whales from the Southern Hemisphere, kind of making their way mm -hmm. into the Northern Indian Ocean. But... It doesn't seem like they're communicating in a sense, like their songs are not mixing. So yeah. if a, a, another species of whale comes in and, and encounters them, they won't understand each other? I think that is a mystery <laughs> that, you know, it was very hard to, to, to answer that question. But yeah, it seems like they seem to be speaking different languages. That is interesting. Um, yeah. So, so... With the humpback whales, I think that what we will say is that we have been studying them and some of the important information out there is that now we do know, first of all, I mean, in the past, hmm. I think prior to the 80s or so, um, I, I don't think anyone really was working on identifying the whales and dolphins that exist here in Oman. But now we have really good information on the fact that, you know, we have 20 different species of whales and dolphins that exist here in our waters. You have this very unique population of humpback whale mm -hmm. um, that is is threatened because it has a very small size. You know, imagine a really small tribe that's trying to survive. Mm. Uh, and then there are various natural threats that this species is facing. And then there are also threats that are brought on by humans. Right. So, of course, we, can, we may not be able to influence um, the natural aspect of things. But what we can influence is what the human impacts are. Mm -hmm. so, um, so part of what we do is try to identify those threats and then see how they can be mitigated. Yes. Yeah, so that's, that's 
I'm guessing the next step. Exactly. We got the research. We understand. We have the data. We kind of have an idea of what's going on. Okay. Now, how do we deal with human beings? Exactly. <laughs> which is which is actually much more complex than just collecting data <laughs> and interpreting that data. At least with that, you know, they're clear yes, steps, yes, right? Yes, with yes. humans. With humans, you know. I mean, earlier we were having a side chat about bureaucracy, but yeah. you know, like it is, it is definitely more challenging um, to. First of all, I mean, I think you need to convince people that this is an issue. Mm. Uh, you need to convince people that there is an economic value to having them around. Is there? Uh, I would say so. So, oh. so from from one one side of things, um, Oman is a very beautiful country. Mm. What is it that makes it beautiful? What is the draw here? I mean, mm. people are not coming to stay at huge. Um, you know, luxury resorts or hotels, something like yeah. that. That's not the draw here. The draw yeah. is the nature. Yeah. And so if you're preserving your nature, you're going to be able to bring in uh, more tourists that are coming in, you know, provided that it's done in a eco-friendly uh, eco, eco type of mm -hmm. way uh, that you're not um, harming uh, the natural environment. So that's one aspect of things. Mm -hmm. The other side of things is kind of what I was mentioning earlier, that if you're protecting these species, you're actually also ensuring that you have a healthier marine environment. Another big uh, component of Oman's economy is the, the agriculture, the, the fisheries, the fisheries sector, yeah. sector mm. which is very important. So ensuring that you have healthy fish, you have... Um, sustainable fishing that's taking place can also ensure that you can have a higher add a higher value to your fish we as humans need to consider the fact that we do not live in isolation of our environment we are a part of it we impact it mm. and it impacts us as well and so the better you are to your environment the better it will be to you as well so if we look at um, things such as air pollution, you know, mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day, this is affecting human health. Uh, whereas if we look at, you know, um, uh, trying to green our industries, we would be benefiting not just the environment and whatever else is living there, you're actually influencing your own health. Yeah. Um, a huge uh, component of the air that we breathe is actually coming from the ocean. Really? Yeah. So um, there are these tiny microscopic um, organisms known as phytoplankton. Mm. And um, they're kind of like, you can say they're not plants, but they kind of function in the same way that plants do on land in the sense that they're the ones that are undertaking the photosynthesis. So a huge component of the oxygen that we're getting is from the primary productivity that they are um, uh, particularly, I imagine, in Oman, since we don't have that much uh, Greenland uh, trees, and you know, which is another source yes. of uh, yes, the air that yeah, we breathe. Yeah, yeah. But we have an abundance of phytoplankton um, and very areas of very high uh, productivity. So as I was mentioning earlier about how the whales, um, typically, they travel large distances, you know, so that they can feed. Mm. In the case of Oman, this is the perfect area. They have warm waters where they can breed. And they also have areas that are producing 
you know, like high productivity. And by productivity, I mean like the phytoplankton are very active. Uh, you know, you have these um, what's known as upwelling. So like cold waters from the bottom of the ocean that come up to the surface. These waters are high in nutrients. And uh, so you have it kickstarts a process of this um, productivity. And then it just escalates up the food chain, you know. Uh, right. So from there to the krill to the shrimp and, you know, onwards all the way up to the larger marine mammals. Well, we're going to go out on um, a quick break. And yeah. when we come back, we'll continue this conversation. Sure. On your nation station. 90.4 FM. And we're back with Saad al the Executive Director of Environment Society of Oman. Thank you for joining me today. We we're talking earlier about the different research that the society has been conducting throughout the years. Um, there is a stereotype that uh, I would say the Ministry of Information has had. I don't know if I'll get in trouble for saying this, but it's true. You all know this to be true. That at some point people were saying, all you guys talk about is turtles. <laughs> That is, uh, yes, I mean, yes, we have received that criticism, <laughs> right? definitely. But you were just telling me off air that the population of turtles in Oman is in decline. And so we need to talk about turtles. Certainly. What's happening? So um, our research has mostly been focused on sea turtles on Masira Island. Mm. Um, I think broadly speaking, there are seven different species of sea turtles that exist in the world. Mm-hmm. Four of those, or I should say five of those, can be found in Oman, with four of them nesting here. So the four that nest here are the loggerhead sea turtles, the hawksbills, the olive ridleys, and uh, the loggerheads. Mm. Uh, sorry, did I say all four? Uh, yeah. yeah. I think um, you said loggerheads twice. Twice? Okay, so then <laughs> there's the greens, the hawksbills, the olive ridleys, and the lo- loggerheads. That's okay, four. Okay, cool. All right. Uh, lack of sleep, I did mention Me earlier. Me too. <laughs> We're in this together. Let's go. Um, so... Um, And particularly on the island of Masira, Mm. all four of those species can be found. So really, it's a very special and unique place. Mm -hmm. Particularly, the loggerhead sea turtles. um, We have the second largest population of nesting loggerhead sea turtles in the world. This is amazing. Wow. Uh, Unfortunately, um, the research shows that there has been a severe decline of almost 80% over the last 20 years. 80%? Yes. Here in Oman or globally? Here in Oman, on Masira Island specifically. So they just are going some someplace else? They're, they don't have anywhere else to go. They're certainly not going anywhere else. So they're dying off? Yes. Ah. Yes. So now... In order for us to understand what it is that's happening, you kind of need to understand what the life history of a turtle is. Okay. So if any of you have visited um, the nesting beaches at Ras al-Had, you're aware that, you know, the female turtle comes onto the beach. Mm -hmm. She lays her eggs. um, She leaves her hatchlings behind. And, uh, you know, after a couple of months, the hatchlings come up out of the water. They face threats on their way to the sea which I'll come back to. Okay. And then, um, you know, they spend time in, their, in the, the open waters. They drift off into the open sea, uh, into areas that are not under Amman's jurisdiction uh, okay. as well. Mm. And then eventually, as they mature, it takes them about like uh, between 50 to 30 years to kind of reach maturity. They come back and then they come into the coastal waters that are close to our beaches and this is the area where they have their breeding taking place and then eventually they come back uh, to the same beaches that um, to lay eggs 
that they were born in. So it in. takes 40 to 50 years for that F- to... 15. 15. You can say between 15 oh. to 25 years for them to reach <laughs> I thought maturity. thought you were talking five decades. Yes, yes, yeah. Okay. Exactly. So they're a very long-lived um, mm. population. Um, now, things can be happening on the beaches, mm-hmm. such as, for example, beach driving, lighting pollution. Um, other, other creatures eating up the eggs? That as well. That's yeah. one of the natural threats. Other creatures eating the eggs. Some of them, you know, we talked about alien species before. So mm-hmm. sometimes you have introduced species like stray cats and stray dogs mm. that are not necessarily part of na- a natural ecosystem. Camels as well, you know, um, that... Well, it's not that the camels are grazing on on the hatchlings, but you know they, there is um, there are some cultural dynamics related to that. Yeah. Um, and then once they enter the sea, you also have fisheries taking place, mm. and it's never the intention of a fisherman to to catch uh, a sea turtle, but sometimes they are caught in what is known as bycatch, so accidental catch. On these big nets, you mean? Yes, while using these big nets. And sometimes they are released alive, and sometimes they don't survive Hmm. as as a result of being caught in these nets. The other aspect of it as well is that once they're in the high seas, which are the waters outside Armand's jurisdiction, there are various types of threats and impacts and different types of fisheries that can also be impacting them. Like what? Like long line fisheries, for example. In um, like so, an interesting story is that um, off of Reunion Island in the southern Indian Ocean, which is close to Madagascar, mm. uh, there are these long line fishing um, vessels that operate. It's kind of like a hook type of uh, system. Mm. You've got these lines with these hooks, okay. and they sometimes um, catch turtles. So they have a rehabilitation program where, you know, if a turtle is caught, they take them, they rehabilitate them, they fit them with trackers, and then they release them. And what they found is 50% of the turtles released, and these these were juvenile turtles, made their way directly north towards Masira Island. So this kind of gives you an indication of the fact that, first of all, you know, whatever issues that we might be having, we have local issues, but we are also dealing with things at an international scale. But generally, what I'm trying to say is that, like, um, you have impacts that are kind of beyond Oman's um, waters. And um, so it's important for us to kind of look at things from all aspects. But what I will say is that one of the the easiest issues for us to address Mm. is what we can see directly, and that is what's taking place on the beaches themselves. That, That walk back to the ocean? Like yes. come, they, when they come out, they lay their eggs and then they go back into the ocean. Yes. That process there, we have control we over. We have control over. Right. So, for example, um, some of the activities that we've been focusing on. So, like I've said, we've been doing research and then we've decided that, okay, we understand what's going on. We know that there are threats out there. Let's start working on addressing some of these threats. Right. So, one of the projects that we've been working on recently is on uh, understanding lighting pollution. So hatchlings, when they uh, come up, um, you know, when they come out out of the eggs that they've been resting in, mm. they make their way directly towards the sea, which usually is the area that has the most glow or is the lightest area because of the, the, the moon's reflection on the sea. Interesting. However, because of artificial lighting, yeah. 
they a, a very large number of hatchlings don't make it to sea. So they follow because they're, something they're else. following the artificial lights. That's so, why they always tell you when it's season to not like turn on any lights exactly. and, and you go uh, in the dark of exactly. night to see them. Exactly. So that's one of the impacts. So right. we've been trying to look at, um, you know, and understanding that Masira um, is an island. People live there. Uh, there is a desire to um, continue to develop this island. It's a beautiful um, island. So what we would try to advocate for is that let's turn it into like an eco-touristic island where people can really come and enjoy these turtles without, uh, you know, getting in the way of the development that needs to take place. So, for example, if you have a hotel that needs to come through come by you know you ensure that you place that hotel obviously not right. on the prime nesting beach have you been yes yeah, several times so i think uh, the hotels uh, like in the it's in the east and then in the west it's completely empty and it's like it's untouched it's beautiful yeah i assume there you want to keep it as it is the so west actually of yeah well actually the turtles nest on the northeast I all see. the way to the southern tip of the island more so than the west so definitely like uh, i mean if you're going to have developments and stuff perhaps the western side might be really more appropriate however i mean like if you do have um, there are certain i mean we we don't have to go into the technicalities of it but like mm-hmm. there are certain mitigation measures that can be taken to minimize the amount of light that goes out so for example for the homes that are already existing on the eastern part of the island we've been working with people to to identify what it is that we can do to change lighting in your home so that there's less of an impact things like so people tend to love having lights on their boundary walls facing mm-hmm. outwards what if you were to place that on the inside of your boundary wall so you still have lights going inside your house without it glowing to the outside or you know putting certain shading on on light so that the light is directed exactly where you need it to be rather than spreading and no, out. It never occurred to me, light, <laughs> light, light restrictions. That's so yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. And, you know, basically <laughs> we're putting together some guidelines for lighting yeah. that we hope um, will be taken up by, you know, the, the community, not just the community, but also on the government side of things, the mm-hmm. uh, Ministry of Housing and, you know, the Wally's office and uh, things like that. I would love to understand a little more about how ESO uh, operates. So you identify a problem, um, you do research, you verify the problem, uh, you come up with solutions, and then how do these solutions come to life? So I would say that there are two different ways uh, to address these solutions. Mm -hmm. One is working at the community level, and the other way is to work Mm top-down on the government advocacy side of things. And um, we are just doing the best that we can to work at both of these levels. So another um, nice example I can give from the island of Masira was working on educating the fishermen on how to safely dispose of their nets. So one of the issues that um, turtles face is Mm. getting entangled in fishing nets, whether these nets are left on the beaches or whether these nets are out at sea. Mm. And, um, you know, part of it is kind of lack of awareness. So having the fishermen understand that, you know, there is an impact. uh, So let's do our best to bring our nets back. If you are impacting turtles, you're also impacting your livelihood, your livelihood yeah. which is also the fish that, you know, I mean, if you are like the, the issue that that takes place with fishing nets that are left at sea is that they continue to fish. They continue to collect fish 
and nobody's consuming that fish so it's it's really a complete waste it's called ghost fishing actually okay um so but we've been working with them and uh to try to um change their behavior and so this is something that we were talking about earlier is like uh, the difference between um raising awareness is one thing the next step is changing the behavior because somebody might be aware that this is impacting but it's a little bit too difficult for me to make a change so then try to look at what are the barriers that are hindering them from changing that behavior mm. you know and you can really go into it as as an entire study and then try to address those barriers and then see you know has the behavior changed or do i need to tweak things do i need to change things that's to me where it gets very interesting the psychology behind how to change people's behavior you don't i mean in one hand you want to be visible you want to be seen and the other hand you don't want to seem like this authoritarian figure telling people what to do because exactly. people don't yes, like that yeah yeah it's so. <laughs> important to to have people see what the benefit is to them yeah. and so we've been doing a lot of um promotional content whether it's infographics or animation videos uh in various languages because of course the fishermen um you know don't necessarily speak english or arabic uh they they have their own languages sure um So yeah, making sure that the content is something that is understood no matter what uh, your background is. And uh, and then on the other side of thing as well, advocating uh, from a top-down approach. Mm-hmm. So try to work with the various government stakeholders. Um, we work very closely with the Environment Authority, with the Ministry of Agriculture and Fisheries. Um, I think those are our main two uh, partners. And in, in that partnership, what is your role exactly? Um our role is to I would say be a supportive um societal aspect you know so we represent the society at the end of the day mm-hmm. we can conduct research we can tell you what our research is telling us but then ultimately it's up to the government to take that on mm-hmm. and embrace it and say yes these are the changes that need to be made um at the end of the day they're the decision makers we can only go so far and uh and they can take it forward from there you know in terms of um any additional uh, legislation that might need n- might need to be put in place mm. or any further enforcement that needs to take place um, or from- looking at you know master mm. planning and designing integrating mm. uh concepts of nature and how we uh, ensure that you know our next building is safe for the environment while we still ensure that we're continuing to build as we need to. Yeah. Yeah. Um how about the societal outreach when you do your campaigns? Yes. What's that process like? So we have um various outreach campaigns. Some of them are related to education and mm. uh, education I mean like colleges and universities or schools. And then we also have targeted um outreach campaigns um that are kind of linked to our research. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if we need to talk to the frankincense farmers, if we need to talk to the fishermen on Masira, uh if sure. we need these to... are people who are specialized in certain areas exactly. and and uh, it affects their livelihood, so I could understand how you could convince them from the perspective of, you know, this will affect your livelihood if you yeah. don't care. Okay. Yes, yeah. But for people like us who are just doing living life, yeah. 
uh, having impact on our environment and unaware of it. And we just sometimes you just need someone to snap you out of it. Yeah, I think it's very important for us to not lose sight of the fact that we are part of this ecosystem. Mm. We live in a very beautiful, we're really very blessed, I believe so, uh, to be living in Oman, where you have beautiful nature that's surrounding you. Absolutely. I mean, I would say one one aspect of it is just spend more time in nature yeah. as a basic um, thing. Just connect. Connect with nature. You will inevitably appreciate it more and want to do more. And then when you see trash in these beautiful areas, oh my God. It yes. breaks your heart. Yes, yeah. And I think uh, one aspect of it is that uh, sometimes you feel like these environmental issues are so global. It's so far out there. Um, I don't think that my individual impact can can make any difference. It's a very common sentiment. Yes, yeah. but in reality, what we require is collective action. Mm. So small action by a large group of people mm. can actually make a difference. So um, rather than looking at it as, you know, this is a very daunting task, I can't tackle it. Think of what you can do, um, you know, every day, like just maybe add a little aspect on, you know? So, I mean... An example. Example, like I saw our good friend Fahed was here uh, last week or, and he made a comment about... Comment to Bess. <laughs> about plastic bottles. And I'm very happy that I'm here today. And I was yeah. not offered a plastic bottle. I was given a, my water in a cup. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. As, as we said in the clip, um, we spoke about this a little bit earlier. It's okay. okay. I, I do believe in the message. And I do believe that we should, as a workplace, um, because if we're going to be completely honest, and all of you guys know who work here, we consume quite a bit of plastic water bottles. Yeah. Because there no one has even though we all know but it wasn't in the con in our yeah. consciousness yeah. now i spoke to the other heads of the department about this interview with fahed and they're all on board and they're mm -hmm. excited about it but then you realize it's not convenient and mm -hmm. uh, you have to take active steps real steps to to make it convenient because yeah. if it remains inconvenient then people are not going to Correct. switch to an alternative yeah. so like step number one get a water cooler in our department we never needed one because we had plastic bottles mm -hmm. all the time mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. now that we're limit we're trying to reduce that i don't even say eliminate because there will be a place yeah. once in a while yeah but we're trying to reduce that so like, oh, okay, so now we need a water cooler. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, what if we do get a water cooler? We, these tiny little cups are still part of the problem because mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. you're going to consume five, six of yeah, those per day. Yeah, which is why day. you should bring your own reusable bottle. Everybody right, but maybe it. somebody will say, I don't have reusable water. Okay, then provide do, them with then glasses. We have, or, and we have to, or pro, yeah. let us provide them. So yeah. it it doesn't just come in, it come naturally. We actually do have so to take steps. So I think it's, it, yes, you definitely do need to take steps because we've been operating in a specific way for a very long time. Mm. But once you make the effort to make those initial changes, mm -hmm. it then just becomes second nature. So, I mean, for me at home, as well as at, at work, yeah. I always carry my reusable bottle with me. Yeah. And uh, it's just, I don't even think of using um, a plastic bottle. You know, I got my yeah. reusable bottle with me today and I left it in the car and yeah. under the sun. Yeah, so we'll yeah, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> this will goes. change as it becomes, mm. as it, you know, as you kind of change your behavior. Yeah. Um, the, th the same thing with... Um, with uh, plastic bags, you mm. know. So there was a ban that was introduced in... Ah, oh, people were upset initially. 
Yes. Right? It yeah. feels like, why are you taking this away from me? But you get used to it pretty quickly. Exactly. That yeah. as well, you know. Um, I think a lot of people, a lot of people, I actually find it way more convenient personally because I feel like you can just fill that bag up with a lot and sure, they're heavier, but maybe I walk out with four large bags rather than, you know, like 25 tr- little trolley. plastic bags. Yeah. <laughs> rather than a trolley. Yeah. So, um, And, and, and with that as well, people mm. just need to remember that, okay, I leave, you know, I empty out my groceries, I return my reusable bags back into the car. When I'm going grocery shopping, I make sure to take them with me. Yeah, that uh, took so me a while to, to, yeah. to remind myself yes. that when you take your reusable bag up to, mm-hmm. to unload it, that to bring it back into your car mm-hmm. and keep it for when you need it, yeah, right? Yeah, it then becomes <laughs> It then becomes second nature, like mm. once, uh, you know... Once you kind of get used to that, I yeah. feel like it's no longer a barrier. Right. And, yeah. I, and I don't understand, and maybe you can help give me some perspective on this, why the topic of envi- the environment is sometimes so polarizing when, there, when science and data will show you that, yes, there is a problem here. Mm. Um, why did this turn political in a lot of countries? Uh, I don't know if this is yeah. something you pay attention to at all. Um, but yeah. it's a problem. It, it divides is. people. It, cert- it certainly does. Um, and sometimes it's related to the economic side of things mm. and kind of um, perhaps a fear that the environmental route or the greener route is going to be the more expensive route. It's going to be the, the more difficult route, you know. Uh, Oftentimes that is true, though. Still, yes, until in, today. In, yes, I would say yes in some cases. However, I also do feel like there's a lot of lessons that can be learnt mm. from the last two years and the fact that we kind of all went into these uh, COVID lockdowns. We all were kind of forced to work in a different way. And, and we survived. We and did it. we survived. <laughs> we survived. We were adaptable. Yeah. And nature in many places recovered as a result of it. Mm-hmm. So... So humans are resilient. I, yes, we're certainly... And we should not yeah. be lazy about it. Yes, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we, gonna, are, we are adaptable. Um, yeah. We should have more of a long-term vision. It mm. might be more costly in the short run. Um, but for the long run, it certainly would be more beneficial, especially when we're looking at um, global climate change and trying to minimize our greenhouse gas emissions. Certainly mm. in the long run, um, it's for our benefit. Well, if you don't mind, Saad, we're going to go on a quick break. And when we come back, I would love to know how you even got into this. Sure. All right. The Nation Station. 90.4 FM. And we're back here with Saad Al-Harthi. Uh, so we spoke about ESO and what it does and the research and and what it's trying to do for society. Um, but I want to learn about you. First of all, just... Based on our conversation earlier, the way you internalize this, all this information shows me that you really care about this and you're not just a, a speaking head. So how did you get into in, the in, environmentalism, if you will? Maybe that word is a little charged, but into caring about the environment. Well, for me, I think that what has influenced me is uh, my exposure to nature from a very young age. Mm. And I do think that sometimes in our society, maybe it's changed now, but um, we tend to allow 
and encourage boys to spend more time outdoors than we do girls. Um, and, but that wasn't the case in, in, in my household. And, yeah. you know, wherever my father uh, took my brother, my, I have an older brother, mm. he took me as well. So we were out camping, we were out in the deserts, we were out on the water. Mm. Uh, and so I think this just kind of... Um, exposed me to the outdoors and to nature and from there the passion for my surroundings grew that coupled with the fact that you know every child has you know their favorite subject and for me it was always the sciences and biology okay and so i think that when it came time for me to look into what it is i wanted to do as i was leaving high school mm. i think the the marriage of science with outdoors uh, really is, you know, environmental sciences. And so that's what I decided to do. I decided to study environmental that's, sciences. And I'm sure you're aware of this. It's so lucky to be able to find something that early and pursue it for your entire career. That's that's very true. Like, yeah. I don't necessarily... I mean, I went into it saying, well, you know, environmental sciences, that sounds... That sounds like it's probably something I'd enjoy. Okay. And I got into the program and it really was... It really spoke to me because mm. I really enjoyed the fact that it wasn't just about the books. There was so much field work that was involved as mm. well. And so I got to go outdoors and explore geology and marine science and uh, just have an even deeper appreciation for what it is that surrounds us. Right. Um, and I think from there, I... Uh, I graduated. Where, had, where did you study again? I studied um, in San Diego at the University of San Diego. That was my undergrad. Mm. And then I went back home to Abu Dhabi, uh, worked there for a few years. Back home? Yes. Uh, what do you mean? <laughs> That's my home. <laughs> That's where you live? Uh, well, currently I live in Oman, but I am uh, Emirati okay. with the Omani background. I see. And uh, grew up in Abu Dhabi. Okay. Uh, all my life so that's my base that's okay. my home ground <laughs> okay not that it affects yes. any of the conversation yes. yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. interesting yes. okay yeah. cool yeah, yeah. yeah so went back there um worked at the environment agency there which was a government entity mm. lucky for me i ended up in the coastal environmental management department which basically sent me underwater literally mm. uh, i you know picked up diving and um, underwater research and coral reef um, monitoring and management, which um, I really enjoyed. And uh, I know yeah. I know a lot of people <laughs> who would love that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so so you you pursued this. You you've known this through high school all the way till you, you, you entered ESO. Yes. Yeah, so well, actually, so in between. Because right now it's looking like a very straight path. Yeah, you know, I think I do sometimes feel like I live very much in a box and I kind of need to move outside of that box, you know? In it's like sense, I'm almost trying to find like where where are the crossroads? Where are the Yeah, yeah, you're right in a sense, you know. Um I it, before moving to Amman, I also went and pursued a master's degree which was mm. in coastal and environmental management. And surprise. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> and then uh, I moved here in 2012. Luckily, I found the Environment Society of Oman, which mm. was, um, I guess, now has become my second home. And I've been there uh, almost 10 years, I guess. Wow. And um, when, when did you become the executive director? I think it was 2006. 
seventeen, I want to say. Okay. Yeah. For you personally, and this is you, and not the society. Um, what is it that you're personally really interested in or care about? Um, uh, an issue that you see here, an environmental issue that you personally really care about. To be very honest, I care about so much that is, and I feel like I'm very passionate about a lot of things. Uh, Just but, that but, way on you. So yeah, you know, I think that one thing with environmentalists it's that it's not just a job it's something that they are usually very genuinely passionate about and uh it can be frustrating when you see these impacts around you and you do your best to try to influence them mm. but change is not happening fast enough mm-hmm. so for example yes i've been here for 10 years um have things improved um maybe in a very tiny way but certainly not enough to keep me uh you know satisfied that yes my job here is has been done well i've will achieved you ever, what will you, you ever <laughs> will you ever though yeah i mean will you ever get to that point i mean humans will always be humans and there will yeah. always be more work to do yeah. no i think what's important is just having the hope having the hope that things will improve generations are changing continuing to influence mm. The next generation in the best way that you can but you, you so because you care about all these things very deeply and you're taking active steps on a day-to-day basis you're running this organization uh, how do you find i don't know a sense of sanity when there is this fire burning when there is there's so much that you're frustrated about yeah. because it's not like you're gonna breathe when you reach the finish line yeah there's always something else around the corner yes yeah so where do you find it's tough i think that you just have to i mean if it's something that you're passionate about you just keep fighting for it you know um i i mean i will admit there are times that you get very frustrated and you feel like all your efforts are for nothing yeah in a sense (laughs) you know um but then you come out of that and then you 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 find some little wins and that kind of keeps you going Um, one thing that is is definitely quite frustrating that you see on a daily basis is just the amount of plastic waste because I feel like this is something that you know if every single individual made a change then we would not be in this situation mm-hmm. uh, it's, it happens it at an invi- individual level yes mm. well it, it happens at an individual level certainly things on the um higher levels can make a difference like you know coming out with a ban on plastic bags mm, right. uh, can make a difference from that direction right but you know as as a as a as a society as you know members of the public let's just have more ownership of uh you know our actions um and maybe a little bit more of an understanding that you know our little actions like just tossing out that water bottle out of your car right. has an impact But what do you say to someone who says, I'm one human in a world of, eight, what, are we at 8 billion now? I think Maybe, we're at yeah. eight. Like, leash. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, at the end of the day... Um, you know? How do you convince that kind yeah, of person? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that it just comes down to the fact that it's not just your single action, it's the collective action that we're after. Mm. Um, and uh, if everybody had that same mindset, we would really be in a terrible state. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, just do your best to try to change the way that person thinks. Right. But I don't know how to do that. 
I'm still trying to figure that part out. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think we all are, really. Especially when you're trying yeah. to do campaigns, then yeah. you really have to go into yeah. like, okay, how much guilt is too much guilt? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? How much guilting people into things is just going to have the opposite effect of what yes, you're looking yeah, for. Yeah. But how do we also be honest about mm-hmm. our messaging? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um I don't know. Maybe this is me, but I would love to like this. This is the kind of stuff that I love to think about. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, how do you go about that? So, who yeah. who is in charge of your campaigns then? Um, we have a couple of people actually. Johanna is one of the uh, people that's on the team. Mm. Um, that's part of that. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, by the way, we're a very small organization. Yeah. Um, and so. We really work very closely together, you know, mm. even when we've got campaigns like uh, depending what the topic is, sometimes your research team needs to work with your communicate, obviously with your communications team. And, you know, you mm. all brainstorm together and try to find what the best uh, the best way is to communicate. Yeah. So the mov- public. moving forward for ESO, any things in plan? You know, we we love exclusives here in the station. So if you got something fresh, uh, well, you know, there is World <laughs> Environment Day uh, on the fifth of June, okay. and it's a great time for people to kind of look at appreciating their natural environment. We've just had this long chat about the beauty of Oman, um, some of the threats that are out there, mm. and how you know, local action is important. So maybe it's a time for us to think of, you know, what we can do as individuals. Um, What's happening on World Environment Day? We don't actually have an event or anything like that taking place. Mm -hmm. Um, Probably just a little bit of a social media campaign. But Mm -hmm. um, I think that it's really up to individuals to take action. Yeah, um, okay, help me put that with that. Okay, what yeah. action can I take personally? Well, first of all, follow follow our social media because okay. I think that that's a great resource for information on what, you know, events might be coming up, but also information on Amman's natural heritage. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we are a non-profit organization. Mm. So we don't have any like uh, funding that we receive from the government or anything like that. So all of these activities and programs that I've mentioned um, take place because we have received either funding or donation or sponsorship. Mm. So as an individual, um, you can also support us by making a small donation, you know, and there's no amount that is too little. Uh, And there are various um, ways to donate, whether it's through like the banking apps or directly through our website. Um, But yeah, every little bit, every little bit. So these, the the donation will be supporting all the things we've been talking about earlier from research to messaging to just communicating with other entities and trying to make a difference somehow. Uh, And I would say, I mean, other than that, just um, do your own research as well. Like um, educate yourself. Okay, we've given you information, but look into it a little bit further. See what suits your lifestyle. Uh, Only you know how you live your life and what, um, I would say, sacrifices, but not really sacrifices, what changes mm. you're comfortable making and start with those small changes. Right. Well, Saad Al-Hathi, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you. It's a pleasure to finally meet you. <laughs> yeah, same here. <laughs> and thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. I showed that. Nobody listening. Ain't nobody listening. Ain't nobody listening. Ain't nobody listening.